0: Good evening, my friends. I hope it is midnight wherever you are. Let's imagine that it's the witching hour. Why don't you turn out all the lights? Yes, even that one. That's better. My name is Josh Hitchens, and I... Am your host tonight. Welcome to Going Dark Theatre, and this midnight I will tell you the tale of the Borden Tragedy Part five. The sixth day of the trial of Lizzie Borden, Saturday, June 10, 1893, contained more witness testimony from Fall River Law Enforcement officers who were present in the Borden house on the day of the murders. Lizzie seemed bored with all of it, but inwardly she was feeling very nervous. She had told her lawyers, George Robinson and Andrew Jennings, that, quote, she had not had a pleasant night. Lizzie was right to be worried because on this day, The question of whether or not her inquest testimony, with all its conflicting statements, would be allowed into evidence. Her defense team had long prepared for this moment, and they entered a motion to exclude the inquest testimony on the grounds that, although not officially arrested, Lizzie Borden had been informed by the mayor of Fall River that she was a suspect before the inquest and so was effectively under house arrest, constantly observed by the police, and during the inquest was not permitted to have her lawyers present, and was not informed of her rights. All very reasonable reasons to exclude the inquest testimony. The court adjourned until Monday to give the three judges time to think the matter over. When the trial of Lizzie Borden resumed on Monday, June 12, 1893, Judge Justin Dewey had made his ruling not only Would Lizzie's inquest testimony be inadmissible in court? The testimony of every single witness at the inquest would also be excluded from the trial. So, Lizzie's conflicting statements, as well as the testimony of pharmacist Eli Bents that Lizzie had attempted to buy poison the day of the murders, The jury would hear none of it. It was a huge victory for the defense and a heavy blow to the prosecution's case. Lizzie could perhaps breathe a little easier as her trial entered its second week, but there were still more minefields to come. Lizzie's chief defense lawyer, George D. Robinson, was in a feisty mood that day after emerging victorious in his fight to exclude the inquest testimony. Police officer Joseph Hyde was on the stand and testified to what he had seen the night of August 4th, 1892, that through the windows of the Borden house he had watched Lizzie Borden and Alice Russell go down to the basement and that later the same night Lizzie had returned to the basement alone and bent over the sink, although he could not tell what she was doing. Officer Hyde mentioned how afraid Alice Russell looked as Lizzie went into the wash cellar. Robinson seized on this, asking Officer Hyde, I think you said Miss Russell appeared to be nervous. She appeared to be very nervous. She seemed frightened of going into the wash cellar. She was kind of nervous, kind of shaking. Did you hear any talk between Miss Russell and Lizzie Borden? No, sir. Miss Russell didn't shriek and say she wouldn't go in there no sir you saw something didn't you I saw her shake and look what part of her shook her whole body her arms yes sir what hand did she have her kerosene lamp in She had her lamp in her right hand. She didn't shake the glass globe of the kerosene lamp right off? No, sir. She wasn't much agitated then, was she? She was a little nervous. She wasn't a particle more nervous than you are now, was she? I don't think I'm very nervous. Robinson then asked Officer Hyde to demonstrate how much Alice Russell was shaking, and then the trial descended into the realm of farce, as Robinson himself shook all over in a parody of a frightened woman, and the courtroom, including the jury, erupted in laughter. However distasteful George Robinson's tactics in this moment were, they were a brilliant move strategically. Alice Russell had been with Lizzie in the basement where the prosecution conjectured Lizzie had been doing something to conceal or destroy evidence. Alice Russell had also witnessed Lizzie Borden burning the dress in the stove and was clearly afraid of Lizzie when she testified at the trial. She was a damaging witness. And with this reenactment, George Robinson made fun of Alice Russell, made the 12 men on the jury laugh at a silly, frightened young woman. Several days removed from her actual testimony, Robinson made sure the jury would remember Alice Russell with laughter and derision first, and then, perhaps, discount or forget what Alice Russell actually had said. It took considerable bravery for Alice Russell to testify against her former friend. She did not deserve this. In fact, Alice Russell began to receive mocking, hateful letters delivered to her home, all of which she read and took deeply to heart. This kind of character assassination of a powerful female witness happens all the time in legal proceedings. It was wrong in 1893, and it is still wrong today. Next on the witness stand was Dr. William Dolan, the medical examiner who had performed the autopsies on Abby and Andrew Borden. Dr. Dolan, as a side note, had received his education at the University of Pennsylvania as prestigious a school in the 19th century as it is today. Dr. William Dolan testified to the fact that Andrew Borden was found lying on the sitting room sofa with his long black Prince Albert coat bundled up between two pillows underneath his head. As I have remarked before, it is hugely out of character for Andrew to have done this. Many scholars over the years have supposed that the murderer, whoever it was, wore Andrew Borden's Prince Albert coat backwards to prevent blood from getting on their clothing, and then placed it between the pillows after the murder so the blood stains would not be noticed. We cannot know for sure, of course. But this seems to me an extremely likely hypothesis. Whoever did it? Andrew Borden also had $81.65 in cash on his person when his body was discovered. $81 in 1892 would be over 2000 thousand dollars in today's money. So, robbery, by Dr. William Dolan's testimony, is now definitely ruled out as a motive for the murders of Abby and Andrew Borden. Keeping in mind Abby Borden's fear that she was being poisoned and Lizzie Borden's statement to Alice Russell that she feared the family's milk was being poisoned, both the milk and Abby and Andrew Borden's stomachs were tested for traces of poison. All tests came up negative. Lizzie Borden was removed from the courtroom for the next part of Dr. William Dolan's testimony in which the skulls of Abby and Andrew Borden were brought out and the hatchet head broken from its wooden handle discovered covered in ashes in the basement chimney was compared to the wounds in the skulls. The handleless hatchet head fit them perfectly. However, Dr. Dolan also admitted that the hatchet head had been analyzed for traces of human blood and tissue. None were found. That hatchet head with its missing wooden handle, which is today on display in the Borden Collection of the Fall River Historical Society, was presented as the murder weapon by the prosecution. However, it could never be conclusively proven to be the murder weapon. And that is an important fact to remember. Tuesday, June thirteenth, 1893, was the eighth day of the trial of Lizzie Borden, and it consisted of more medical testimony without any new significant revelations, although the various doctors called to the witness stand did go into the deaths of Abby and Andrew Borden in extremely gory detail. On the ninth day, Wednesday, June 14th, 1893, prison matron Hannah Reagan testified about overhearing an argument between Lizzie Borden and her sister Emma while Lizzie was in jail. Lizzie saying, Emma, you have given me away, haven't you? And Emma replying, No, Lizzie, I have not given you away. Hannah Reagan also related another incident when she and Emma were both in Lizzie's jail cell, and Emma bet Lizzie a dollar that she couldn't break an egg in a very particular way. Lizzie accepted the bet for a quarter, and following Hannah Reagan's instructions, was not able to break the egg. Lizzie laughed, and then she said to Emma and Hannah, That is the first thing that I undertook to do that I never could. Prosecutor William Moody then asked Hannah Reagan if it was true that Lizzie's defense lawyers had presented her with a paper for her to sign, which read, quote, This is to certify that my attention has been called to a report made by me in regard to a quarrel between Lizzie and her sister Emma, which Lizzie said to Emma, you have given me away, etc., and that I expressly and positively deny that any such conversation took place, and I further deny that I ever heard anything that could be construed as a quarrel between the two sisters. End quote. When presented with this paper, Hannah Reagan had refused to sign it. On the 10th day of the trial, Thursday, June 15, 1893, the prosecution rested its case. The prosecution had taken ten days to present its case against Lizzie Borden. The defense's case for Lizzie Borden would take only one and a half days. Andrew Jennings made his opening statement for the defense. Jennings was not as theatrical as George Robinson, the defense lawyer who had dominated the trial during the case for the prosecution, but Andrew Jennings brought humanity back into the courtroom. A sense of the weight of everything that had been irrevocably lost in this bloody tragedy. Andrew Jennings had known Andrew Borden and Emma Borden nearly all his life, and the murdered Andrew Borden had been one of Andrew Jennings' first clients as a lawyer. For Jennings, this case was deeply painfully personal, opening his case for the defense of Lizzie Borden, Andrew Jennings said. I want to make a personal allusion before referring directly to the case. One of the victims of the murder charged in this indictment was for many years my client, and my personal friend. I had known him since my boyhood. I had known his oldest daughter for the same length of time, and I want to say, right here and now, if I manifest more feeling than perhaps you think necessary in making an opening statement for the defense in this case, you will ascribe it to that cause. The council, Mr. Foreman and gentlemen, does not cease to be a man when he becomes a lawyer. Fact and fiction have furnished many extraordinary examples of crime that have shocked the feelings and staggered the minds of men but I think no one of them has ever surpassed in its mystery the case that you are now considering. The brutal character of the wounds is only equalled by the audacity, by the time and place chosen here, and, Mr. Foreman and gentlemen, it needed but the accusation of the youngest daughter of one of the victims to make this the act, as it would seem to most of men, of an insane person or a fiend. The person who is arrested for doing the deed which I have characterized as I have was the youngest daughter of one of the victims themselves, a young woman Thirty-two years of age, up to that time of spotless character and reputation, who had spent her life nearly in that immediate neighborhood, who had moved in and out of that old house, living there with her father, her stepmother, and her sister. This crime that shocked the whole civilized world, Mr. Foreman and gentlemen, seemed from the very first to be laid at her door by those who represented the government in the investigation of the case. We shall show you that this young woman, as I have said, apparently led an honorable, spotless life. She was a member of the church. She was interested in church matters. She was connected to various organizations for charitable work. She was ever ready to help in any good thing, in any good deed. And yet, for some reason or other, the government in its investigation, seem to fasten the crime on her. Now, a crime like this naturally awakens as its first result a sort of selfish fear in men. There is really an outcry in human hearts to have somebody punished for the crime, but Mr. Foreman and gentlemen, no matter how much you want somebody punished for the crime, it is the guilty and not the innocent that you want. The old law of blood for blood and life for life, Mr. Foreman and gentlemen, never called for the blood of the innocent in return for the blood or life of a murdered one. Mr. Foreman and gentlemen, that is not the law of Massachusetts today. Our law and it is the law that you have sworn to apply in the evidence of this case, presumes every man innocent until he is proven guilty, not guilty until he is proved innocent. Mr. Foreman and gentlemen, I say this is a mysterious case. Everybody, every thinking man, must say the same but you are not sitting there mr foreman and gentlemen to answer the question how this deed could have been committed who committed it that is not the issue at all the issue is a simple and direct one the Commonwealth here has charged that Lizzie Andrew Borden, in a certain way, at a certain time, killed Andrew Jackson Borden and Abby Durfey Borden with malice aforethought. And that, and that alone, is the question you are to answer. Did she on that day commit that deed? Did she commit it in the way alleged or to put it in its other form? Have they satisfied you beyond a reasonable doubt that she did it? And what is a reasonable doubt? Well... I saw a definition and it struck me as a very good one. A reasonable doubt is a doubt for which you can give a reason. If you can conceive of any other hypothesis that will exclude the guilt of this prisoner and make it possible or probable that somebody else might have done this deed, then you have a reasonable doubt in your mind. Bravo, Andrew Jennings. If I could quote his entire opening statement, I would. However, the entirety of the trial transcripts, nearly 2,000 pages, is available to read online. The remainder of the day was spent with defense calling a gaggle of witnesses who claimed to have seen a strange or suspicious man lurking in the vicinity of the Borden house on the morning of the murders. All of them were known and respected citizens of Fall River. Their testimony served to accomplish Andrew Jennings' goal with the defense of Lizzie Borden, opening up the possibility in the minds of the jury that an intruder could perhaps have committed the crime. After all, planting the seeds for reasonable doubt. On the eleventh day of the trial, Friday, June 16, 1893, Emma Borden took the stand. Her testimony occupied almost the entire day. Emma Borden Lizzie's older sister had sworn to their mother, Sarah, on her deathbed that she would always take care of Lizzie. Emma was shy and retiring, deeply respected in Fall River as a church-going, good-hearted spinster. Testifying in open court must have been an agony for Emma Borden, but she may have felt it was her duty to do all she could for her little sister. First, Emma testified about the ring that their father, Andrew Borden, had worn on his little finger. She reiterated that it was Lizzie's high school class ring and that their father had worn it every day of his life after Lizzie gave it to him after she graduated. Andrew was still wearing it when he was murdered on August 4th, 1892 and he was buried with it still tight. On his little finger. Next, Emma Borden testified about the dress that both she and Alice Russell had observed Lizzie burning in the kitchen stove. Emma said that the dress had indeed been stained with paint, not blood. And what was more, Emma also testified that she herself had encouraged Lizzie to burn the dress, saying to Lizzie, You have not destroyed that old dress yet. Why don't you? I would, if I were you. The defense tried to go even further, getting Emma to say that the Bordens always burned old or soiled clothing, but the prosecution managed to get this excluded from the trial. Why the police had not found this stained dress when they searched the entire Borden house is a question Emma could not answer, and there is still no answer to this day. Then Andrew Jennings questioned Emma about Hannah Reagan's testimony that she had overheard a quarrel between Emma and Lizzie. Andrew Jennings says to Emma Borden, Now, Miss Emma, on that morning, did you have any conversation with Miss Lizzie in which she said, Emma, you have given me away, haven't you? I did not. And, Emma Borden, did you say in reply, No, Lizzie, I haven't, and she says, And I will let you see I won't give in one inch. Was there any such talk as that? There was not. Was there any... Was there ever any trouble between you and your sister, any quarrel of any kind? Emma Borden answered, No, sir. So, Mrs. Hannah Reagan told a falsehood. And Emma Borden answered, She told a falsehood. Emma Borden. So polite, quiet, and respectable, how could the jury not believe her? When asked about the giving up of property to Abby Borden's sister that had caused so much tension within the family, Emma admitted that it had, but After Andrew gave Emma and Lizzie property of their own, things had mended. Hosea Knowlton, District Attorney for the Prosecution, asked Emma Borden, Were the relations between you and Lizzie and your stepmother cordial after that occurrence of the house that you have spoken of? Emma's answer revealed a window into her own secret feelings, which were usually so carefully hidden from public view. Emma Borden said, Between my sister Lizzie and Mrs. Borden they were, not with Mrs. Borden and me. Emma Borden, who was already a young woman when her mother died and Andrew married again, had much more cause to hate Abby Borden than Lizzie did. That is worth remembering. On the twelfth day of the trial of Lizzie Borden, Monday, June 19th, 1893, the defense rested its case. Then the prosecution and the defense each made their closing arguments. George D. Robinson, for the defense, spoke first. May it please your honors. Mr. Foreman and gentlemen, one of the most dastardly and diabolical of crimes that was ever committed in Massachusetts was perpetrated on August 4th, 1892, in the city of Fall River. Here, then, was a crime with all its horrors and well may those who stood first to look at the victims have felt sickened and distressed at heart and human nature be broken who could have done such an act says everybody in the quiet of the home In the broad light of an August day, on the street of a popular city, with houses within a stone's throw, nay, almost within touch, who could have done it? We walk away from Fall River, gentlemen, We come down to the broad seashore. We sniff the breezes of the sea. And here is freedom. Here is right. Here are you, gentlemen. As you begin to contemplate this crime, and its possible perpetration by this defendant, you must conclude at the outset that such acts are those morally and physically impossible for this young woman defendant to have committed. To foully murder her stepmother, and then go straight away to slay her own father, is a wreck of human morals. It is a contradiction as to her being. Who are you, twelve men? And how come you here? selected out of 150 that were drawn from the body of this county, passing the gauntlet of criticisms, questions, and objections put upon you by the court or by the attorneys, you are sworn here in this case, in this cause. Who are you? Men. Bristol County men, men with hearts and men with heads and men with souls and men with rights. Now bring your hearts and your homes and your intellects here and let us talk to you as men, not as unfeeling things. And Lizzie Andrew Borden From the day when we opened this trial until this hour has been in your charge, gentlemen. We entrust her to you. Now that is your duty. She is not a horse, She is not a house, she is not a parcel of land, she is not the property of anybody, but she is a free, intelligent, thinking, innocent woman in your charge. You are trying a capital case. A case that involves her human life, a verdict in which against her calls for the imposition of but one penalty, and that is, she shall walk to her death. When the life of a man is in debate, no time can be long, no care too great. Hear all, weigh all with caution. Now, gentlemen, it is not your business to to unravel the mystery. You are not here to find out the solution of that problem. You are not here to find out who committed the murders. You are simply and solely here to say, is this woman defendant guilty? That is all. And although the real criminal shall never be found better a million times that than you find a verdict against this woman on insufficient evidence and against your human experience and contrary to the law so that an unhealthy appetite may be satiated and blood given to that which belongs to the owner of it beyond anyone's taking. Not who did it. Not how could it have been done. But did she do it? That is all. There was no blood on her. And blood speaks out, although it is voiceless. It speaks out against the criminal. Not a spot on her hair, or her feet on her dress, or her person anywhere. Think of it! Think of it for an instant! Yes, There was one drop of blood on her white skirt as big as the head of the smallest pin, says Professor Wood. I forbear to allude to what is proved in this case, Miss Borden's illness, Lizzie Borden's monthly illness at that time. You know the facts. I need not give them in detail. You know enough in your own households. You know all about it. You are men and human. You have your feelings about it. I am not going to drag them up, but you must not lose sight of these things. Take care of her as you have all this time, and give us promptly your verdict not guilty, that she may go home and be Lizzie Andrew Borden of Fall River in that blood stained and wrecked home where she has passed her life so many years. Hosea Knowlton, the district attorney, made his closing argument for the prosecution. The prisoner at the bar is a woman and a Christian woman, as the expression is used. It is no ordinary criminal that we are trying today. It is one of the rank of lady, the equal to your wife and mine, of your friends, or your daughters, or mine of whom such things had never been suspected or dreamed of before. I hope that I may never forget, nor in anything that I say here today lose sight of the terrible significance of that fact. We are trying a crime that would have been deemed impossible but for the fact that it was and are charging with the commission of it whom we would have believed incapable of doing it but for the evidence that it is my duty, my painful duty to call to your attention. The prisoner is a woman, one of that sex that all high-minded men revere, that all generous men love, that all wise men acknowledge their indebtedness to. It is hard. It is hard. Mr. Foreman and gentlemen, to conceive that woman can be guilty of crime. It is not a pleasant thing to reflect upon, but I am obliged to say that while we revere the sex, while we show our courtesies towards them, they are human-like to us. They are no better than we, they are no worse than we. If they lack in strength and coarseness and vigor, they make up for it in cunning, in dispatch, in celerity, in ferocity. If their loves are stronger and more enduring than those of men, their hates are more undying, more unyielding, more persistent. We must face this case as men, not as gallants. You will be slow to believe that it was within the capacity of a woman to have done it. But it was done. It was done for a purpose. It was done by hatred. It was done. That aged man, that aged woman, had gone by the noonday of their lives. They had borne the burden and the heat of the day, and hand in hand they expected to go down to the sunset of their days in quiet and happiness. But for that crime, they would be enjoying the air. Of this beautiful day. Over those bodies we stand, Mr. Foreman. We sometimes forget the past. Over their bodies we stand. And we say to ourselves, is it possible that this crime may not be discovered? You are standing, as has been suggested by the defense, in the presence of death itself. It is not only what comes hereafter, but it is the double death that has come before. There is a place. It is the chamber of death where all these personal animosities, passions, and prejudices have no room where nothing but the truth the naked truth finds room and lodgment. This is the most solemn duty of your lives. You are all merciful men. The walls of mercy, I hope, are not dried up in any of us. But this is not the time or the place to exercise it. Rise, gentlemen. Rise to the altitude of your duty. On the 13th day of the trial... Tuesday, June 20th, 1893, the prosecution concluded its final argument, and the Chief Justice of the Court addressed Lizzie. The Chief Justice said, Lizzie Andrew Borden, Although you have now been fully heard by counsel, it is your privilege to add any word which you may desire to say in person to the jury. You now have that opportunity. Lizzie Borden stood up and faced the jury. Like O.J. Simpson... In a trial just a little over a century later, Lizzie Borden, at this moment, spoke for the first and only time in court. I am innocent. I leave it to my counsel to speak for me. After 13 long days, the jury left the courtroom to decide on their verdict. They returned after only one hour. The clerk said, Lizzie Andrew Borden, stand up. Then the clerk turned to the foreman of the jury and asked, Gentlemen of the jury, have you agreed upon your verdict? The foreman replied, We have. Lizzie Andrew Borden, the clerk of the court said, Hold up your right hand. Mr. Foreman, look upon the prisoner. "'Prisoner, look upon the foreman. "'What say you, Mr. Foreman?' "'The foreman interrupted the clerk of the court. "'He looked at Lizzie Borden in the face, "'and the foreman said loudly, "'Not guilty!' The trial transcript describes what happened next. Quote, There was an outburst of applause from the spectators, which was at once checked by the officers. The prisoner dropped to her seat. For Lizzie Borden, in more ways than one, this was... At last, the moment of her release. Finally, for the very first time in public, Lizzie Borden wept. Andrew Jennings. One of the attorneys for her defense, the man who had known Andrew, Emmy, and Lizzie Borden for most of his life, also broke into tears, saying, Thank God. Oh, thank God. Author and Historian Roger Lane is interviewed about the trial in the 2005 History Channel documentary The Strange Case of Lizzie Borden and he says something extremely perceptive Quote By modern standards, it was a short trial 13 days By 1893 standards, in which many homicides were disposed of in a single morning, it was a long trial, but it was also theater. Psychologist Kara Robertson adds in the same documentary, Shakespeare would have loved it. (laughs) Next time we meet. I will conclude this tragic story with the tale of the Borden Tragedy, Part 6. If you enjoy the podcast, I encourage you to leave a rating and a review if the spirit moves you. You can also like Going Dark Theater on Facebook. If you'd like to support the podcast, get access to episode transcripts and other spooky projects I'm writing, I have a Patreon. Patreon.com slash Josh Hitchens. You can subscribe for as little as $1 a month. I am your host, Josh Hitchens and you've been listening to Going Dark Theater until our next midnight together. I wish you all very pleasant dreams. And now...